Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe Vader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games that they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Joe, what are this week's games? Up first is 2004's The Sims 2, another trip into the wacky life simulator that brought the camera into full 3D and turned the franchise into what we know today. Following that is the first gliding, gem-collecting, 3D-platforming winged adventure on PlayStation, 1998's Spyro the Dragon. The themes between the two games... Ah, not necessarily on the game front, but more in their composers. As these two composers that we will highlight today are both members of prominent rock bands from the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, like a really, really weird place that we were able to find a connection there. Because my first thought was like, oh, green gems, Spyro collects gems, the Sims gem over their head. But... You were the one to point out to me that, no, they're both members of very prominent bands from that time period. It's like, well, crap, I knew that about my guy, but I didn't know that about yours. <laughs> oh, I mean, I guess Gems works, too, if you really want to look for something on the game's front. Specifically, yeah, Green Gems. Oh, boy. But yeah, it should be a fun one this week. So, Joe, how are you doing? What are you playing? Well, unfortunately, I haven't gotten back to Danganronpa. Just gonna... Get out in front of that. I had a couple of reviews, one that's still not done at time of recording. Uh, but one of the games that I reviewed is a game called Sumire. It's an adventure game where you play as a, I, I want to say pre-teen girl in Japan in like a rural Japanese town. And she's kind of dealing with this whole, her life getting turned upside down by like her grandmother passing away and then her dad leaving her mom. And it's it's just a lot. It's got a fantastic soundtrack. It's like two, three hours long, and it came out just a couple weeks ago. So I would definitely recommend people check that out. That's uh, spelled S-U-M-I-R-E for those that wonder. Yes. Sumire as in the uh, a Japanese name, essentially. Uh, and it's it's very good. It's also very pretty. Like, very pretty. Uh, and I've been working forward in Soul Hackers. Uh, I went to the airport dungeon and then ran back and forth in a corridor for like three hours and became more powerful than God. And so I'm kind of coasting through a lot of stuff now, but yeah, that's been fun so far. It had a moment that made me die laughing, which was in soul hackers. Like I talked about in the game, there's this thing called paradigm X, which is a sort of virtual town that people can go hang out in. And at one point, you read on SummonerNet, which is the secret web forum, dark web web forum for devil summoners. And it's just, it's them saying, hey, the new thing is finally ready. You can access it through the pet shop in Paradigm X. The password is THXDVL. And for some reason, that password was enough to just absolutely kill me laughing it was so funny but that's i really haven't been playing anything else the other review i'm working on is on a game called moondawn 
which I think I've talked about before, uh, but I have not done the review of it quite yet, so look forward to that soon. I beat Mass Effect 2, reinstated the romance with Liara and Lair of the Shadow Broker, which is just top-notch DLC, honestly, but the Paramore 2 trophy did not pop. Oh, no. Saying that, uh, you know, you have romanced characters in two of the three Mass Effect games, and it's like, ah, cool. Bugged achievements. Love it. So then I started Mass Effect 3, and I'm on Mars, and we'll keep on going from there. That's really funny. Actually, the the bugged trophy, because I've heard the opposite of uh, people that have bought and started playing Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrade. Apparently, when you start it up for the first time, all your trophies carry over, and it shows that by popping every single trophy you got on PS4 one by one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so that's fun. Yeah, trophies are fun right now. And then, if uh, you're listening to this now, uh, at time of release, I'm probably in the middle of playing Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart, because that is hours away from release at our time of recording. And it's going to come up later in this episode, too, as you alluded to last week. Whoa, crazy. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Before we get to our first game this week, let's talk about some composer follow-up news. And boy, do we have quite a lot this week as we're slowly getting into E3 times. We're in like the days before E3 actually starts. Uh, But we talk about so many composers on the show. They're still working on great things in the industry. So let's catch you up with what they're doing. Lucas Pope who you may remember his name from Return of the Obra Dinn. Uh, he is releasing Mars After Midnight for the upcoming handheld lo-fi gaming device, Playdate. Oh, it's that little cute little uh, monochromatic device. It's, it's adorable. It's got a crank. It does have a crank as a form of control. That's right. And uh, Keita Takahashi. We talked about him with his involvement with Katamari Damashi. Uh, He is supposedly also involved with one of the system's launch games, so uh, good to see that moving along, that little Playdate device. Yeah, I don't really personally have any interest in the Playdate. I know a lot of people are very excited for it. Matt was asking me in DMs at one point, like, this has Ouya vibes. Is this going to be like the Ouya? And (laughs) I had to to explain, like, I don't get the sense that Playdate's trying to, like, we're going to take on the Switch! Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. We're going to win. They're just a novelty, and they know they're just a novelty, and I think they're leaning into that, and that's good. Meanwhile, uh, this isn't a gaming composer that we have talked about, but we talked about Yoko Kano in our very first April Fool's episode when we covered anime, and also just Yoko Kano is cool, so we want to say that she has been confirmed to be returning to do the soundtrack for Netflix's live-action Cowboy Bebop, which has also been set for a fall release of this year. Please don't suck. I know the chances are very high that it will, but oh, this is a good first step. This is this is encouraging, at least. Absolutely. To get her back, do new original music, absolutely, you know, so on board. Christina V sometimes appears here and there on the internet as a vocalist, and she is featured on a cover of Animal by The Living Tombstone, also featuring the 8-Bit Big Band. This is part of Tombstone's remix album, Zero underscore one colon reloaded. So yes, Christina V, very talented as a vocalist, still doing things online. Oh, she kills that song too. I have no familiarity with that song. I don't 
really follow the Living Tombstone. I've heard the name, but I'm not into that fandom, I guess. But man, Christina V can kill a song. She's got a hell of a voice. But yeah, also the 8-Bit Big Band, who we've featured also as a, a remix artist on the show. Fantastic as well. Absolutely one of my favorite YouTube channels currently. Meanwhile, T. Lopes, who we discussed for his work on Sonic Mania very recently, or was that month? Oh god, that was like two months ago. That's not super recently, but you know. He is featured as one of the artists on the album Club Fantastic Step Forward, which is a free album that is meant to highlight up-and-coming artists in the dance music scene. He collaborated with artist Dylan James on the track P.O.T., I assume, because it's could just be pot, but you know. Uh, <laughs> and you can actually download that album for free at clubfantastic.bandcamp.com. He's all over the place. It's so, so good to see him get more and more work. Austin Wintry has his podcast that he's on every now and then, uh, Game Maker's Notebook, which I think it's not necessarily his podcast the more I looked into it, but he's on it regularly, but it's through the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences. Uh, and he recently had Lena Rain on an episode. And so Lena Rain, who uh, just talking about her success with Celeste and her career trajectory as a whole, but it is also relevant because her most recent game that she has worked on the music for, Chicory, A Colorful Tale, is out now. Uh, go get it on PS4, PS5. Uh, it seems like a really fun time. I know it's a game you'll be playing soon. Yes, I actually bought it on Steam this morning and uh, downloaded it literally like three hours ago. <laughs> well, well, it's on PC too. It's really cute because like she's posting screenshots of Chicory being right next to Final Fantasy VII Remake mm -hmm, on the mm -hmm. new uh, the new releases window and and like sort of geeking out about that. And that's a great segue into Final Fantasy VII Remake Integrate is now available, and maybe they'll make Yuffie not an annoying character, but I don't... I mean, they they fixed all my problems with Aerith. Maybe they could do the same for Yuffie. I don't know. We'll have to see. I'm very excited to find out. And that just means more music, too. Oh, I know. It's going to be a, another killer soundtrack. Uh, remember that the PS4 to PS5 update is free but if you want the integrate dlc with yuffie it's 20 bucks so mm -hmm. make sure to keep that in mind and if you're only buying the ps5 version uh it comes with yuffie for free oh yeah if you're buying the game from scratch just saying mm -hmm. if, if you happen to play remake from last year uh, so there is that also the jeff keely big mealy uh, known <laughs> as the summer game fest i didn't think you'd read that out loud <laughs> <laughs> it's funny it's, it's, it's good uh, yeah the summer game fest kickoff live uh, just kicked off a few hours ago as of our time of recording uh, honestly the big thing was Elden Ring uh, the internet's really happy that Elden Ring finally got showed it's real it's a game that's gonna come out dated actually I just thought it was gonna be 2022 but no uh, January 21st 2022 so Souls fans are really excited about that uh, there's a 12 minute Hades concert you can find on the Game Awards' YouTube channel. This is part of the Day of the Devs showcase where Darren Korb and Ashley Barrett uh, gave a little Hades concert. And they played Good Riddance, Lament of Orpheus, In the Blood. Uh, it's a good time if you're a, a Hades fan. A whole lot of announcements there. Still have to dissect all of them. I'm not sure how many of them honestly involve composers we've talked about. Uh, but Joe, 
Here is the important thing. The day of release here, we're hours away from the Nintendo Direct for E3 2021. So, I have to ask you, the likelihood of a Super Smash Bros. character release, or at least announcement, very likely. Uh, You, as you run your podcast Masterpieces, where you have to play a game for each character, let's put your announcement, set it here in stone, we're recording the Friday before, for, for record and reference. Who do you think the character will be? Uh, any any thoughts? Put it in stone. Ooh, that's a hard one. First of all, I think there's a non-zero chance we get both characters, but I don't. I also know damn well we're probably only getting one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I but I could see them dropping two the way they did Hero and Manjo. If I had to take a guess, my bet is still on Officer Howard from Astral Chain. That's Ooh, my okay. that's my bet. That's a good guess. I could see that happening. I don't yeah, I don't know how many big third-party splashes they're really willing to make. I'll throw my hat in the ring for Crash Bandicoot. That would be a close second for my guess too. I think it could happen especially if you throw in Coco as an alternate uh, for that one, but I would lose my mind. I just the rumors are all over the place. I don't think anybody knows anything uh, at, at our time of recording here. Uh, so when you see like Phoenix Wright rumors pop up, oh, I wish I would pop off for that. Um, you know, you'll still hold out the hope there. Sora, <laughs> it's not going to happen. But, you know, that is probably the coolest possible announcement that they could make, I guess. If Sora gets into Smash, I will never live it down for the rest of my life. I've built a brand over out of saying Sora won't be in Smash. <sighs> but also, I'd be super excited. <laughs> They've had a real good handle on keeping that information under wraps for the past few. So I'm very much looking forward to just getting blindsided by something in much the same way that Sephiroth just sort of threw me for a loop. Yeah, yeah, it should be a fun time. Uh, the E3 train cometh. All right, so that was a long composer follow-up news, and next week's probably going to be even longer. Sorry in advance. Uh, but let's get into our first game, and that is The Sims 2. So The Sims 2 was originally released for Windows PCs on September 14th, 2004 in North America and September 17th, 2004 in Europe. Doing uh, research for this episode led me to realize that, wow, Sims games don't come out in Asia. Hmm. They don't come out in Japan. None of them. That's weird to me. And also fascinating. Anyways, macOS followed on June 17th, 2005. Then in October slash November of 2005, they released ports for the GBA, GameCube, DS, PS2, and Xbox, which... It really paints a picture of the exact weird moment in the industry that this happened because it came out on the GBA and the DS at the same time. (laughs) Right. That is weird. And then finally, at the tail end of 2005, the game also saw a release on the PSP. So it was developed by Maxis Redwood Shores, published by Electronic Arts, but the PSP, DS, and mobile versions of the game were developed by Amaze Entertainment. So, we talked about its successor about about a year ago, I want to say. 
uh, last year, episode 67. It was paired up with Hotline Miami, The Sims 3. And in case you have never played a Sims game or you didn't listen to that episode, here's how Sims is. It's a life simulator, kind of. Uh, it's kind of a mix between a god simulator and a life simulator, essentially. Uh, you can create and customize a person, referred to as a sim, as the series is called, and you can build them a house, furnish that house, and uh, try your hardest to make them make decisions that won't lead to them crying in the middle of the night before falling asleep in a puddle of their own urine, and this is a lot harder than you would think it is. Sims are really dumb. And that's pretty much the whole game. Uh, you help them get jobs and make sure they're responsible human beings and all that jazz. There's really not much more to it. But in terms of additions that this game made to the series from Sims 1, honestly, Sims 2 is about where the franchise turned into what we basically know as The Sims today. Uh, it just introduced a bunch of things that wildly transformed the game between between 1 and 2. Uh, for instance, Sims 2 as a whole introduced things like the ability to give your Sim wants and fears. It also beefed up Create-A-Sim, where in Sims 1, your Sims were pretty much mainly made up of preset stuff, like preset face shapes, body types, etc., etc. But in Sims 2, uh, the character is a full 3D model, and the player could customize and sculpt that model as they saw fit. And it also added more life stages for Sims. Uh, I didn't know this, but apparently in Sims 1, there are only adults and children, and children never grow up. <laughs> so it's weird Neverland situation there. Uh, so a child would never, never grow into an adult. But in Sims 2, not only did they add the ability for Sims to age, they also added the life stages of toddlers, teenagers, and even elders who will eventually die of old age. And Sims age at a constant in-game rate. Apparently how long you last when you become an elder depends on how good you've done at the aspirations that you set for that sim, which is a little harrowing to think of. Hmm. But by far the most significant change, and again, I did not know this, uh, I would like to thank our friend Katie, the sim guru, who helped me uh, figure this out because the Sims 2 Wikipedia article is an absolute mess. Apparently in Sims 1, all of the furniture and the characters and the objects, they're sprites. They're 2D sprites. They're not 3D models. Because of that, uh, the camera in Sims 1 is a fixed isometric camera. But Sims 2 made everything a 3D model, and therefore you had full control of the camera. The camera could go wherever you wanted to take it. And this was a really big deal because that's basically just in general how Sims works now. Anyways, Peter, this is where I will ask you, what are your experiences with The Sims 2? Though I feel like I already know the answer from Sims 3. Well, <laughs> fair, <laughs> fair. Uh, I think you're right. Well, Sims 2 is huge, though. Uh, let's, let's be clear. I know so many people who played The Sims 2, mm -hmm. uh, because it was that huge next step. It was everywhere. Did I play it? No. Uh, I think you're absolutely right there. Uh, but again, I know people who played it. I've seen gameplay of it, know the gist of what The Sims is all about, but uh, never found it of interest to sit down and play it myself. When I was a teenager, I think I might have talked about this on Sims 3 too, because I think 
on that one, I was like, I'm probably not going to talk about another Sims game. Let's just go <laughs> experience with Sims in general. Uh, that worked out well. We had a copy of Sims 2 for the PlayStation 2. Which people always, Sims fans, if you mention that, they will be like, oh, you poor sweet summer child. Because they're weird versions of the game. But we played it all the time. Granted, I learned today that some of the things I just assumed were part of The Sims 2 in general were just specifically part of the console releases of Sims 2. <laughs> so I learned a lot because I've never played the PC version of Sims 2. Uh, and I'll be able to get into why later on down the line because I had a chance and EA took it out of my hands. So let's talk about how Sims 2 came to be. So development for Sims 2 began following the completion of the first Sims game after they got all of the... Uh, expansions and all that out that would be in late 2000 and then it was officially announced in may of 2003 and the first time it was shown off was at e3 in may of 2004 i wasn't actually unsurprisingly able to find a ton of information about how the sims 2 was made it was you know an ea game being made in 2004 before the internet really, really became the place. Like, you, I want to say this was pre YouTube. Oh, yeah. Sure. Maybe not pre YouTube, but way early YouTube at the very least. I mean, YouTube was, I think, 2005. So I think you're right there. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. But I was able to find a development diary by Lucy Bradshaw, who was at the time the vice president of PC development at Maxis. Uh, the only way that you could get into this article was through the Wayback Machine, unfortunately. And unfortunately, while she posted a lot of pictures of these, most of them are gone. But when I say these, I'm talking about bugs. Because apparently this game was a weird, weird mess to develop because, as she explained it, bugs would just randomly appear in builds that had worked perfectly fine the previous day. And then they'd go to try and reproduce these bugs and they could never do it again. But they kept happening, just different ones, new ones all the time. Again, the pictures on the Wayback Rashid are gone, unfortunately, most of them. But there are still a few of them there, and they look like something you'd expect to see from a Vine Sauce corruption stream. Like, bar none, just polygons going haywire, textures going bad. Uh, there's one that is still there, which is a sim, uh, a male sim, in his bathing suit is bathing shorts with this massive head-sized bulge right in the crotch <laughs> just just right there one of these bugs though uh and sadly these screenshots of this specific one are entirely gone was apparently by her description something that had to do with effects that were supposed to go over a sim's head during an activity such as like hearts when they're in love or bubbles over their head when they're swimming and stuff like that. They were appearing in very wrong locations, and I don't know what that means because I can't see any of the stuff, but I assume that means the crotch area for at least some of them. Uh, and they were kind of causing polygons to go insane. Like, one screenshot that did survive was a chin that had just extended into infinity. It was great. Uh, <laughs> 
And then she goes on to bring up that these specific bugs began randomly showing up the night before they were getting on a plane to go to Los Angeles and show this build at E3. Oh, no. <laughs> so, apparently it was just a lot of stuff like that. But again, other than that, I, I can't actually find a lot of information on how the game was made. There aren't really any. Sims 3 at least had some making of documentary shorts and stuff like that, but nothing like that for Sims 2. Uh, though it did review well upon release, it's sitting at a 90 on Metacritic and a 91% on game rankings. It sold 1 million copies in its first 10 days, which at the time made it the fastest-selling EA game of all time. I assume that's been topped by now. Oh, sure, yeah. Probably by Sims 3, if I had to take a guess. Uh, between the years of 2005 and 2008, eight expansions for Sims 2 were released. University added the young adult age group, as well as an influence mechanic, and, as you might guess, the ability to go to college. Nightlife added an attraction system, as well as the ability for Sims to go on dates. Open for Business added the ability for Sims to own a business, essentially. Pets added pets. Nothing else. Seasons added a weather system, fishing, and gardening activities for Sims. Bon Voyage added the ability for Sims to take vacations in different areas of the world. Free Time added lifetime aspirations, as well as the ability for a Sim to develop hobbies. And Apartment Life added rentable apartments, a reputation mechanic, and witchcraft. It made sure to mention that witchcraft was added in that expansion. You know, whatever the Sims do in the privacy of their own homes. In the, in the privacy of their apartment, I guess, yeah. They also released 10 stuff packs. I'm not going to name them all, except for one of them is sponsored by Ikea, which I found kind of funny and also painfully obvious now that I think about it. Like, yeah, that's a good fit. Good job, guys. <laughs> I'm sure the names of all those objects are real fun to pronounce. So, I mentioned that I played the PS2 version when I was a kid, and uh, I believe the Xbox version works like this as well. Uh, that version specifically gave the player direct control over the sim. Assuming direct control. You could directly control where they walk and all that, not like a point-and-click like regular games are, and... It could even do two-player split-screen with this, where you could make two Sims and both of you get to control one of them. It was really cool. We did it a lot in my house. I went my entire life just assuming that the direct control thing was just part of Sims 2. It's not in the PC version. <laughs> mm -mm. So I have been told. I've been living a lie. Another fun story that I found was that the game also had a small bit of controversy due to its open attitude towards community mods, mostly. Some of which claimed to get rid of the censorship pixels that appear when a sim uses the restroom or takes a shower. If you've played Sims, you know exactly. It's just a mosaic blur. It's just there. And, uh, man, has it really taken us this long to mention him? Uh, good old Jack Thompson. Mmm. There's a blast from the past for you. He alleged that the genitals below these pixels were actually completely modeled, and that the game was promoting nudity by giving the player the ability to get rid of these pixels. And the main reason I bring this up is because it caused an EA executive named Jeff Brown 
to have to make a statement about sim boobs and crotches, saying, quote, This is nonsense. We've reviewed 100% of the content. There is no content inappropriate for a teen audience. Players never see a nude sim. If someone with an extreme amount of expertise and time were to remove the pixels, they would see that the sims have no genitals. They appear like Ken and Barbie. And an executive had to say that out loud to a reporter. That's amazing to me. Well, you know, lawyers that dealt in misinformation, I guess, also existed in the mid-2000s, so uh, that's not surprising. And yeah, wow, Jack Thompson, huh? Finally, <laughs> okay. He, he got the troll he wanted, I guess. I guess so. Uh, that being said, while he says the expertise in time part of the quote, uh, there was actually a console command that could resize the uh, sensor pixels. And it was quietly removed shortly after this controversy. <laughs> because it, according to them, it was not actually ever supposed to be part of the retail version of the game. It was a debug setting that accidentally got left in. Which makes sense. That happens all the time. But, who boy. Not a great thing to have during that controversy. So, while on the console and PC, they're relatively the same game, minus the direct control thing, uh, the handheld games are apparently completely different. Even from each other. So, on GBA, it's apparently a game where the player takes part in an episodic reality show story. DS puts the player in charge of a hotel. And PSP is a third-person story-based video game. Oh, that's insane. Not only three different SKUs, but three entirely different video games. So, support for Sims 2 actually ended in July of 2014, so this game lasted a good decade. Uh, and the game, plus all of its expansions, were released for free on Origin for two weeks. EA claimed that they would then list the game for retail purchase later, after this window closed. But uh, as of the end of 2017, Sims 2 has been entirely removed from EA's Origin service. That's how I got the PC version of Sims 2. And then uh, none of my computers can run it because it doesn't, it's not compatible with modern PCs at all. So thanks, EA. At least it was free. And then as for Legacy, I mean... Sims 3, we already talked about that game, and Sims 4, I believe, is still getting support, though I imagine Sims 5 is somewhere in the pipeline, I, if I had to guess, who knows. Yeah, if I had to guess, probably maybe a couple years away once they kind of, you know, handle uh, what are the AI possibilities of this kind of next generation of mm -hmm. games going forward, I would imagine, yeah, within maybe one to two years we see an announcement and then whatever goes from there. I hope they're not going to make The Sims smart, because that would kill the whole point of The Sims. They're supposed to be <laughs> blind, dumb idiots. So, let's talk about the composer for The Sims 2, which is why it was brought to my attention in the first place. You see, after I did Sims 3 last year, our uh, personal friend, Moses, came to me and said, Hey, you should do Sims 2, because its music was done by Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo. I said, that's weird. Okay, I'll look into it. Now, a year later, you're welcome, Mose. So, Mark Mothersbaugh was born May 18th, 1950 in Akron, Ohio. And in the early 70s, he attended Kent State University, where he met Gerald Casale and Bob Lewis. Uh, and they 
had actually just come fresh off of losing a friend in the Kent State shootings of 1970, uh, which we're not going to delve into, but it was, it was, it's a bad time. It was bad time. Vietnam was a mistake. Uh, the, pa- <laughs> the pair had actually started discussing what they felt was the de-evolution of the human race. And Mother's Ball was, uh, pretty interested in this concept. So by 1973, they had been making music and had started performing under the name Devo. And Devo, man, if I tried to get into all of that band's weird history, we would be here for six hours, apparently. I knew none of it going in. They seem to have broken up multiple times, reformed multiple times with new members, fallen out several times. Uh, (laughs) They fell out in 1991, but then I guess got back together eventually. But the significance of the 1991 breakup was that after that point, Mothersbaugh established his own music production studio called Mutato Musica. And if you're thinking, okay, you talk about Devo, I don't know who Devo is. Yes, you do. You know the song Whip It. You <laughs> must whip it. Crack that whip. Like you you know that song. That's Devo. And also you've probably seen their hats. The weird Lego looking cone hats. They do wear that, yes. In 2006, he apparently worked with Disney and got the band back together to take part in a project called Devo 2.0, which was a project that saw the group playing their old songs, but the vocalists all being children, which is really weird. But okay. And from the from the sound of it, it seems like this was like an ironic, haha, these songs are about how the human race sucks, but now we're singing, ch- children are singing it. I don't know, it was weird to parse. Uh, But Devo apparently still performs here and there every once in a while. I think Wikipedia said that their last performance was like in 2018. So not that far off. And then last year, Mark Mothersbaugh had contracted COVID-19. He caught COVID and that put him in the ICU on a ventilator for 18 days. Uh, Fortunately, it did all turn out okay. He is fine. Uh, Though he says that he was completely delusional during the ordeal at a certain point, uh, with Wikipedia describing it as, quote, he came to believe that he had been hospitalized after being hit by a brick in Little Tokyo and repeatedly urged his family members to search for his attackers. But yeah, apparently it was he was real bad, and uh, he did make it through, though, so that's, that is good to hear, because when I started reading that paragraph, I was like, ah, crap. Ooh, yeah, wow, thank goodness. Uh, and the last couple things about him, uh, he often works with Josh Mansell, who we talked about on OSC episode 73, for his work on Crash Bandicoot. He was the composer that basically worked on every Naughty Dog game from the PS1 and PS2. Mark Mothersbaugh actually happens to have been the producer on all three of the original Crash games, plus Team Racing, as well as Jack and Daxter 1, 2, and 3. Hmm. So, yeah, there's that. And you can follow Mark Mothersbaugh on Twitter at mmothersbaugh, that is M-M-O-T-H-E-R-S-B-A-U-G-H. In terms of discography, wow, this man has done so much. So I'm just going to go through some of the stuff that I knew from the title. Uh, He's done TV shows, he's done films, he's done games, 
In terms of TV, he composed the soundtracks for Pee-wee's Playhouse, Rugrats, Rocket Power, Clifford the Big Red Dog, All Grown Up, Blue Mountain State, Regular Show, The Last Man on Earth, Disenchantment, What We Do in the Shadows, and most recently, Tiger King. That alone is impressive, and then it only gets more so. In terms of films, it's Happy Gilmore, Halloween Town, The Rugrats Movie, Rugrats in Paris The Movie, Halloween Town 2 Calabar's Revenge, The Royal Tenenbaums, The Even Stevens Movie, Rugrats Go Wild, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Hotel Transylvania, The Lego Movie, Pitch Perfect 2, Regular Show The Movie, Hotel Transylvania 2, Thor Ragnarok, which I had no idea, Hotel Transylvania 3, The Lego Movie 2, and most recently, The Mitchells vs. The Machines. And again, those are just the ones that I knew from the title. <laughs> After watching The Mitchells vs. The Machines and Thor Ragnarok, probably within the last month, yeah, yeah, that's legit. He's real good. <laughs> and then, in terms of video games, I mentioned that he was a producer on Crash 1 through 3, as well as Crash Team Racing, and Jack and Daxter 1 through 3. He also did the music for a game called Interstate 82, Sims 2, obviously, which is why we're talking about him here. He did the music for My Sims, The Simpsons Game, Boom Blocks, My Sims Kingdom, Racing, and Agents, Skate 3, and most recently, as you alluded to last week, he is the main composer on Ratchet & Clank, Rift Apart. And that, as far as I can tell, at least according to Wikipedia, that's his first game soundtrack in a decade. <laughs> hmm. So this is him actually coming back to the industry after not being here for like 10 years. Wow, and I, I think I've, you know, Insomniac put out an article that was like, let's go behind the scenes a little bit. And that was them, like, specifically reaching out to him because of what he's done with movies recently, like Thor Ragnarok, The Mitchells vs. The Machines. Like, mixing in these electronic beats into music, it's just what Ratchet needs. That should be really exciting to hear that score. Hey, maybe that'll be a score that's uh, best of 2021 at year's end. Very much could be. So, in terms of historical development research for Sims 2 itself, I couldn't really find anything, but I did find mention that the soundtrack features music that is performed by artists like Paramore, who performed some of their music in Simlish. Those will not be part of this episode, because DMCA is mean. Joe, how would you explain Simlish to someone who does not know what Simlish is? It is the language that the Sims speak that is a gibberish language. You know, when those videos pop up, that's like, this is what English sounds like to non-English speakers. That's Simlish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a weird nonsense language that apparently they can put music into. In fact, Katie uh, yelled at me for a, a little bit that I needed to put the Simlish version of Walking on Sunshine in this episode and we can't do that because we <laughs> no. will get pulled down uh, <laughs> so let's talk about the songs that we won't get pulled down for in our critical five uh, and the first one critical track number one is of course the sims 2 theme
This is the main menu theme of the game. And honestly, it's just this really upbeat, peppy song. I really, really love the pizzicato strings. I think that's a good touch every time any game uses those. And then later on, there's uh, somebody whistling. And that honestly gives it a lot of personality. I think I like The Sims 3 theme more, a lot more, but I also think that this song is incredibly fun and just delightful to listen to. I think it nails the vibe of if you know anything about The Sims 2. Like, I didn't know what the theme song was, but I hear this and it's like, oh, yep, that captures this kind of mood perfectly. I feel like I should have nostalgia for this song, but it actually legitimately brings up no memories in my mind. And I don't know why, because I'm sure I heard this song a million times. It makes me wonder, honestly, though, if like this is probably from the PC version. Did the console version have the same music? I think it did, because actually my next critical track, I do remember hearing a mm. lot. And that is critical track number two, Sim Time. Sim place. Unfortunately, this is the last one where they make a clever Sims name because cowards. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of the songs that plays during Create a Sim, which going to say it right now. Uh, three out of four of the remaining critical tracks are all Create a Sim, which was justified to me as this is where you're going to spend most of your time when you're playing The Sims is making your Sim, putting them together. And, you know, this soundtrack is a lot more harpsichord than I ever would have expected from a Sims game. Yeah, that kind of tinny piano-ish sound, if you don't know what a, a harpsichord is. It's it's a lot of places on this soundtrack, you're right. It's it's really bizarre, because thematically, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but, uh, you know, what? What do I know? What? Well, you mean that Sims 2 didn't have a Baroque expansion <laughs> to it? Did Sims 3? I feel like Sims 3 did. Oh, oh That sounds familiar. <laughs> Did I just will something in existence? I don't know. That was my Sims Kingdoms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Where you get to be the king and queen of your own. Uh, and, and no, look, uh, it's also weird that this track in particular gets this like roboticized voice instrument. Mm-hmm. Which that's different. Also weird, th a weird thing to mix with harpsichord in general. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I dig it. I like it a lot. But it's just, it's not a combination you'd ever expect ever and hey i love when game music does that it's fantastic uh but also this song also has a lot of piano and look man i'm simple i'm a simple dude i like piano i hear piano it goes on the list yeah for critical track number three we have another song from create a sim it is makeover Thank you. 
Now, would I honestly listen to this song while having a, uh, a slumber party with the girls as we paint each other's nails and stuff? No, probably not. I like the song because it has like a really, really good cello part. And then just, you can hear it in the clip. It turns into this really kind of pleasant listen past that. Uh, and then there's this weird fusion of like these electronic synths. High frequency, I guess is what I'd call it. And that's, again, another thing that's like, huh, that's weird to mix with a cello. But I dig it. I always appreciate cello showing up in songs, so that gave this song just a big up in general. I feel like that right there, like that infusion of that synth instrument with the kind of cello, the kind of you know, peppy, happy, slightly orchestrated vibe, like that's Mark Mothersbaugh. Like that infusing that kind of electronic sound into a piece just a little bit uh, like that's i think that's a, his touch for sure it's a really really good piece and yeah you're right that's that's his style to a t it seems and we're gonna hear even more of that in critical track number four it's the last song on the list that's create a sim i promise it's bare bones might be a close second for my favorite uh i i don't think i mentioned uh makeover is my favorite song uh in the game but bare bones really gives it a run for its money and listening to the clip uh i bet you can guess why it's another one of those songs that just has this really happy vibe to it and the piano is really poppy and and bouncy and i don't know i really really dig the vibe that this song is is throwing down it's very light, you're right, and definitely driven by the piano for sure. And then, yeah, the harpsichord's coming a little bit at the end of the clip there. Just, just, just a slight bit, so you can't really escape them. Yeah. And again, it's still weird that they're on this soundtrack to such a degree, but mm -hmm. it works. Last track on the Critical 5, it is First Volley. Why is this song called First Volley? I don't know. I would love an answer to that question. But it plays during buy mode, uh, which is when you can go in and buy all the furniture and stuff that's going to go in this house. You got to furnish your house with all the best stuff so your sim can be very happy. Katie actually helped me figure out a lot of stuff for this episode, including helping me know where these songs played. And when she got to this one, she just said, God, this song sounds like shopping. And she is correct. This sounds like a shopping montage in a comedy movie. That's the vibe I get. Specifically grocery shopping, kind of. And 
I really, really dig it. And I also think it's just got a really good groove to it. It's a fun piece. I also get Animal Crossing vibes. Oh, yeah. I can hear that, actually. Right? Like, you're in, uh, you know, Sable's shop with Mabel and all that. I, you're buying things, buying clothes. That's kind of what I, I get. Especially with this little kind of mm. instrument that's in there, too. It kind of has that feeling to me. So, yeah, I, I totally get the, <laughs> if this is a song about capitalism, so be it. This one is capitalism to a T. Ah, capitalism is a terrible system. Anyway, <laughs> let's jump into the cutting room floor. I have two tracks. The first one is Simsation. There it is. It's another pun. Why couldn't they all be like that? I have to wait till I get to the cutting room floor before they give me another one. Why can't they all be like that? Uh, I like this song. It plays during buy mode, just like First Folly does. And uh, honestly, when I listen to this vibe, it feels like I'm watching like a legally distinct Price is Right local cable show. Oh, yeah. Like they're showing you what it's on your showcase showdown. Like, here's here's what's part of your package. A trip to a cabin seven miles away. <laughs> uh, and also, it's got more pizzicato, which I always dig pizzicato in songs in general. So this one really stood out to me. Harpsichord. It's back. I, I gotta point it. It's one of those instruments that, like, you can't, you know, avoid it. You can't just be like, oh, yeah, I guess that was in that piece. It's like, oh, no, it's it's got that distinct sound to it. It's like a near central part of the soundtrack. Right. And I just love when we get to, you know, it's like, what, what does this sound like? What does this remind me of? And you're right. That's, that's a good comparison. Price is right, huh? <laughs> but like specifically local cable, l- way lower budget. Off brand, for sure. Yes, off yeah. brand, yeah. And for my second track on the cutting room floor, it is Busy Sim. This is uh, the one song on this entire list that plays in build mode when you're building your dream house. And I don't know, I just like this song because it's got a really good groove to it again. And then there's more piano and also what sounds like electric harpsichord now? Like a synth trying to sound like a, a harpsichord? I think that's what that is. Whatever it is, I like it. Yeah, definitely like influences that a little bit. So yeah, it's, it's different enough. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it's odd, but it works. I'm going to be real. When I came in to do this soundtrack for this show, I kind of didn't expect, like, expected it to be like, oh, it's a AAA EA game from 2004. How, how great is it possibly going to be? But, like, it's got this really, really distinct personality to it in general. Uh, and I really, really respect that. It's very fun. Everything is so positive for how dark The Sims can be at times. <laughs> Everything is great and happy. Yeah, it's uh, 
It's odd. So what will I never forget about The Sims 2? Well, I mean, I played this game as a teenager. And uh, again, I thought that the console version that I was used to was just how the whole game was. It's not. But the other thing, I mean, I'm always going to remember... When you play The Sims as a teenager, you do all the things that a teenager is going to be like, Ah, I could get them to do the thing. Yeah. And that's mainly what I remember. There was also a story mode in PS2 Sims 2. I don't know if that's in PC. Mm, I'm going to guess not. Probably not. It was weird. I liked it, though. Sims 2 was one of those games that me and my sister played uh, a lot. And I have very, very fond memories of it. So, to transition to our next game, uh, we usually grab a remix or fan cover. Whether it be YouTube, it could be OC Remix, it could be anywhere. This one specifically comes off of YouTube, because most of the time mine do. And it's in character for me because it is a piano cover of Bare Bones by the YouTube channel Charles Wall Piano. And look. I'm a simple man. I find a piano cover, it goes in the show. What can I say? Please enjoy that. We'll be right back. planned to talk about this game a while ago and then it just so happens that I am talking about games from Insomniac Games in back-to-back -back weeks. Oh gosh, how does that happen? Well, apparently poor planning, but this week I am talking about Spyro the Dragon. Spyro the Dragon released on September 9th, 1998 in North America for the original PlayStation. Europe got the game the next day, on September 10th. Australia got it on October 23rd, 1998. Japan, meanwhile, got it a bit later, on April 1st, 1999. It ended up being re-released on PlayStation Network for PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Vita as a PS1 classic on December 12th, 2012. And then... Most recently, in 2018, Spyro Reignited Trilogy, which is a full, from-the-ground-up remake of the original trilogy of games from Insomniac. This released on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One on November 13th, 2018. PC and Switch got the game on September 3rd, 2019. If you're looking to play the game today, that is where you should play it. Uh, the original PlayStation game is a little rough to go back to, but... You know, play the Reignited Trilogy. It's actually really good. So, the original game is developed by Insomniac Games and published by Sony Computer Entertainment. Spyro the Dragon is a third-person 3D platformer where the player plays as the titular dragon and must locate collectible items in large, open-ended levels. Uh, some of these items include gemstones, crystallized dragons, and stolen dragon eggs. Spyro's abilities as a dragon include fire breath, a head-on charging attack, and a mid-air glide, which he can use to scale large distances. All of these abilities must be used strategically to find items and defeat enemies. 
Uh, Spyro is also accompanied by a dragonfly named Sparks, who indicates Spyro's health level. So Spyro can take three hits before dying, with Sparks changing from yellow at full health to blue to green and then gone for death. Uh, but health can be replenished by eating butterflies that spawn from defeated enemies. So I think one of the cool things about Spyro's abilities is particularly his glide in that it doesn't have a meter. It's not like, oh, I only have so much stamina. Like, no, you, if you can, you can go way far out and keep on gliding. It's actually one of the, the neat things at the time. And I think one of the things that they uh, transferred really well in the Reignited Trilogy. So what is the plot of Spyro the Dragon? So the game takes place in the world of dragons, where the Dragon Kingdom consists of five homeworlds, and all of them live in harmony. But one day, the elder dragons Astor and Lindar are being interviewed for a video documentary about their world. Little do they know, Nasty Nork whom they had previously banished from the Dragon Realms long ago to the Dragon Junkyard, somehow overhears their derogatory comments about him and becomes quite upset. Uh, we must note that Nasty Nork is spelled with G's at the beginning of each, so it looks like Ganasty Ganork, but it's Nasty Nork because he's half gnome and half orc. So... While in exile, Nasty Nork has experimented with magic, and on this fateful day, he decides to unleash two of his most powerful spells vengefully. One of these freezes all of the unsuspecting dragons inside crystalline statues, and another, which transforms a portion of the dragons' treasure into an army of Norks. However, Nasty Nork misses imprisoning the youngest dragon in the realm, Spyro, because of his small size. So the big question, can Spyro free all of the imprisoned dragons across the homeworlds and defeat Nasty Nork? Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Spyro the dragon? So I have played a lot of Reignited Trilogy. Uh, I haven't beaten any of them, but I made it the farthest in Spyro 1. I actually did a review of the Switch version oh. of Reignited uh, Trilogy back when it back when it came out on that. Uh, and I had never played Spyro before. I I just it's a series that had just avoided me forever because you know I never PS1. What was the point? I liked Spyro 1. I made it to the final boss, and that final boss sucks. It's not good, and it kind of, after like several times slamming my head into it, I just sort of gave up. But the game around that boss was a lot of fun, and I had a good time with it. So I own Reignited Trilogy on PlayStation 4, and I've, I've watched it be played a little bit, but I haven't played it myself. It seems fun and easy for the most part, and it seems like a good time. I think I... It would be something that I should have played before this, and uh, this is a game that was recommended for us to cover on the show, so I kind of uh, took the lead on that one, so I uh, thank you for suggesting this. I mean, that's definitely one of our goals this year is to cover more games uh, that we may not know, but you may out there for 2021. 
so it was interesting to learn about Spyro the Dragon and the composer and all of that behind it. But personally, yeah, no experience playing Spyro the Dragon, but some watching it. So we talk about Insomniac Games and uh, previously with Ratchet and Clank last week. Talk about how the original game in 2002, well, oh, they were coming off the Spyro the Dragon trilogy. Well, what was before that? Well, Insomniac's very first game, Disruptor, in 1996, was a critical success but a commercial failure. And so Universal Interactive Studios stepped in and encouraged them to continue with a new idea featuring a dragon. And so inspiration for this game was initially taken in part from the film Dragonheart. And the game was initially, quote, realistic and kind of dark and gritty. <laughs> oh, I want to see the concept art for that. I know, right? Uh, before eventually it took on a more whimsical and lighthearted direction. And this was especially because of Mark Cerny, a name familiar to PlayStation fans as the architect of the PlayStation 4 and the PlayStation 5. At the time, he was an executive at Universal Interactive Studios. And he was the producer of Spyro the Dragon. And he advised that the team should create a game that had a more mass market appeal. See, particularly in 1998, PlayStation's 98 holiday releases included Crash Bandicoot Warped, A Bug's Life, and Rugrats Search for Reptar, along with Spyro the Dragon a couple months before. And this was all part of a general effort to appeal to a wider demographic of younger audiences and provide more games suited for those younger players because it was the time and competition of the Nintendo 64, which had a far larger library of those family-friendly, child- or young-centric titles. And so PlayStation at the time was kind of targeting more adult-centric players, and so... Let's put out these kids' games to appeal to kids. So the design dragon was originally named Pete. But Insomniac is like, oh, we don't want a problem with Disney, who has an old film called Pete's Dragon. Probably a smart move. So kind of stay away from those Disney lawyers. So they're like, okay, what about the name Pyro? Well, the name Pyro is considered too mature. You think of Pyros as teens wanting to set things on fire. A.K.A. Boy Scouts, <laughs> in my experience. I mean, yeah. So then, Spyro. And Spyro was designed to be green, originally, because that's kind of the first color you think of when it comes to dragons. Well, unfortunately, when a green dragon is running around the world that is covered with a lot of grass, uh, the character tends to blend in a bit. So what is green's complement color? Purple. And so a purple dragon would stand out best against green grass. Apparently to make Spyro's controls feel fluid, Insomniac brought in Matt Whiting, who was a NASA engineer that specialized in flight controls. And he was brought on to help with programming specifically the camera movement along with Spyro's movement controls. Because at first the camera was a little too much with the jumps and then the gliding. And it was making some playtesters feel nauseous. And so 
They brought in a NASA engineer to get it feeling just right. There are five worlds in Spyro the Dragon, as well as a boss world. Uh, these five worlds focus on the kinds of dragons that live there, like what their jobs are, what their interests are, because each dragon has a little personality and a name to them. So these five worlds are the artisans, the peacekeepers, magic crafters, beast makers, dream weavers, and then there's the boss world that was formerly the dragon junkyard, but it's now Nasty's world. In each of the main worlds, there are three realms, a flight realm and a boss realm, but then two realms, a boss realm and a bonus realm in the boss world. Due to a close working relationship and they were sharing game development tools back and forth uh, between Insomniac and Naughty Dog. So at the time with 1998, we mentioned how Crash Bandicoot Warped came out at the same time. So yeah, Spyro the Dragon, Crash Bandicoot Warped, these two companies, these two PlayStation studios, they're working on these games at the same time. And so as a result, a demo for Spyro the Dragon is hidden in Crash Bandicoot Warped and vice versa. Interesting that we bring up Crash Bandicoot Warped because you mentioned how Mark Mothersbaugh was a producer on that game. And so, yeah, in a way, it's a, it's, it's a small degrees of separation kind of a connection, but hey, hey, it works. Carlos Alizraki provides the voice for Spyro in the first game. Uh, you may know him from different roles, such as uh, Rocco in Rocco's Modern Life. And they aimed to make Spyro sound like, quote, a kid at camp that everybody likes. <laughs> that kid doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, right. You're absolutely right. Uh, following the original game, Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants and many more, would continue the role in the sequels. So the game reviewed rather well, with a game rankings average of 85%. The gameplay, graphics, level design, and music were all praised, but the biggest critique was a lack of difficulty. I mean, not much of a surprise, I would think. Although, I guess you say for that final boss, though. Final boss is the only thing that gave me trouble in that game. <laughs> it is quite easy. It's just that the final boss has, like, no margin for error. And you have to start over every time you die. Like, completely. Yikes. Overall, it is compared favorably, though, as a lot of reviewers seem to make the comparison, also they came out in the same year, that Spyro is to PlayStation as Banjo-Kazooie is to Nintendo 64. I think many people would say that Banjo-Kazooie, the superior game, but you kind of look at what the games do and what they're kind of aiming for, and yeah, that's a pretty fair comparison. And also, to be fair, one of those characters shows up in games still, and the other doesn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be fair. That's, that's also accurate. <sighs> I'm sad now. Sales of Spyro the Dragon were initially sluggish, but it found larger success with the 1998 holiday season, and it went on to sell nearly 5 million copies worldwide. It was nominated for Console Action Game of the Year and Outstanding Achievement in Art and Graphics at the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences Awards. This is what we now know as the Dice Awards. Oddly enough, it lost to Banjo-Kazooie for both of those <laughs> awards. So it's kind of almost quantified in a way there. But Spyro the Dragon does have two more sequels that Insomniac made, including 1999's Spyro 2 Ripto's Rage. I learned that in Europe and Australia, it's called Gateway to Glimmer. 
And then 2000's Spyro Year of the Dragon. That kind of rounds out the Insomniac trilogy. Spyro would star in 10 more games between 2001 and 2008, including a like a rebooted trilogy in like 2006. And uh, it didn't last much after that, though, because then Skylanders Spyro's Adventure came out in 2011. And Spyro looked wrong. His face <laughs> looked jacked up. Skylanders became its own thing, kind of focusing less and less on Spyro and more on the monsters of the world. And then Spyro Reignited Trilogy in 2018. Uh, there's, you know, you get rumors every now and then, like, is, is someone trying to make Spyro 4? Well, and then more and more Activision Studios are working on Call of Duty. So, uh, who knows at this point? Including Toys for Bob, the people who made Reignited Trilogy and Crash 4. Yeah, that's uh, pretty, pretty depressing. But, as I noted, one of the biggest things about this game is its soundtrack and the critical acclaim it got. And that would be because of composer Stuart Copeland. Stuart Copeland was born on July 16th, 1952, in Alexandria, Virginia. His mom was a Scottish archaeologist, and his dad was Miles Copeland Jr., who apparently, according to a biography and then records that were unsealed, he was a founding member of the Office of Strategic Services and the CIA. In the United States. <laughs> so, wow. Stuart Copeland ended up living in Egypt, Beirut, and England throughout his childhood. He started playing the drums at age 12, and he went to college in California, enrolling at Alliant International University and UC Berkeley. In early 1977, Copeland founded The Police, with lead singer and bass guitarist Sting and guitarist Henry Padovani, who was soon replaced by Andy Summers. And The Police became one of the prominent rock bands of the late 70s and early 80s. Again, you ask, I don't know any police songs. Every Breath You Take, Roxanne. Even I know police songs, man. <laughs> I mean, like, classics. You know songs by The Police. Stuart Copeland was ranked the 10th best drummer of all time by Rolling Stone in 2016. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the police in 2003 and also inducted into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame in 2005 and the Classic Drummer Hall of Fame in 2013. So, yeah. Wow. Just a, a remarkable drummer for one of the most famous bands of our time. But then he started to compose for films after the police disbanded. And he was commissioned by Insomniac Games in 1998 to compose for Spyro the Dragon, the first video game that he worked on. In 2000, he combined with Les Claypool of Primus and Trey Anastasio of Fish to create the band Oysterhead. And Oysterhead still plays shows every now and then today. He currently lives in Los Angeles, California, his hobbies include roller skating, cycling along the beach in Santa Monica, filmmaking, and playing polo. One of his children, Patrick, loved playing Spyro the Dragon so much and got so good at playing it that he would eventually end up working 
at Insomniac Games. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. What a heartwarming bit of trivia to come across. Loved that. You can find Stuart Copeland on Twitter at Copeland Music. He has a YouTube channel that he posts to at Stuart Copeland Net. And his website is at stuartcopeland.net. So his discography, uh, he's worked on some games, including Spyro the Dragon, Ripto's Rage, Year of the Dragon, and even the fourth game that Universal picked up instead of Insomniac being Enter the Dragonfly. Uh, He also composed for Alone in the Dark, The New Nightmare, or also known as Alone in the Dark 4. Is Alone in the Dark, The New Nightmare, the reboot? That no, no, bad. No, yes. Okay. That game was just called Alone in the Dark, wasn't it? Yeah. I think so. And that was in 2008. This was like earlier 2000s. Mm. His films, though, he's worked on a ton of films. Only some that I recognized, and that would be Wall Street, Highlander 2, The Quickening, Good Burger, She's All That, and We Are Your Friends. He's also done some TV work, including The Amanda Show with Amanda Bynes. Oh, man, that's... A throwback back to the all that days and her movie <laughs> career and all that. Uh, Dead Like Me and The Life and Times of Juniper Lee. So the historical development research for the Spyro the Dragon soundtrack. Uh, Copeland's process was that he would play through the levels first to get a feel for each one before composing the music. And he was even given like cheats for the game, such as Invincibility so that he would have an easier time clearing levels. He noted, though, that's like, you can have invincibility all you want, but some of those jumps and glides and gaps are really long, and invincibility won't help you there if I can't beat that part. So, interesting to note. Uh, Apparently, Copeland wrote four songs per day, all of which he further developed and polished the next day. According to him, each song in the game was written to correspond to a specific level, But this correlation ultimately went unused. That kind of sounds like a shame. But Copeland does look back positively on his work on Spyro, calling the game's music some of his best compositions. Uh, He also really has fond memories, as I mentioned, with his family and how much his kids loved playing Spyro. Like, that's like a big part of the work he's done, you know, post his police days. It's really weird that they moved his tracks though because that's what is am i understanding that correctly yeah that's the gist i got and yeah it is strange you think you'd have more of a say in that but maybe that's an audio director's job i i don't know apparently the pal version has some different tracks for some reason this is another game where it doesn't have an official soundtrack release and so when you find versions on youtube like this is this level but the pal version and i don't know if it's like because of the different frame rate that PAL games have and like if the music was supposed to help line up to action better so it maybe it's at a different tempo or they it's hard to say there didn't seem to be much information on why this was the case so when it came to the reignited trilogy remake Stuart Copeland wrote a new main theme for the compilation though he didn't write any other new tracks for the project instead the rest of his score for the trilogy was re-recorded by Stefan Vankov who is from Toys for Bob, the developer on the remake. And I think he was the sound director. So the game did also include the option to freely choose between the two soundtracks. All remakes should have that option. Oh, for sure. 
Absolutely 100%. It was interesting, though, that Copeland was notified about this, that, you know, hey, we're, we're making Spyro again. We're, you know, kind of reimagining some of your music. Do you want to come in and listen to this? And he's like, no, I, I don't I don't think so. It's like, oh, no, you should come do it. Like, okay, well, I mean, maybe send me the tracks. And it's like, no, you should come in and do this. And so when he actually came in to listen to the music, like he was blown away. Like he said, it made him like made him tear up. He got emotional about it. Just overwhelmed by the results. And again, like because of those deep ties to his family and what the game meant to him and that it was, you know, taken with such love and care. Uh, just that's and again, a great story when you can't necessarily get the composer to commit for the full project, but really treat it with such respect. So let's get to that original soundtrack for Spyro the Dragon and get into the five critical tracks. I think we have to start with number one here. This is the opening theme. As you might have guessed, this is the main theme of the game. It plays on the title screen. I would say it's probably the most famous song from this game, honestly. Like, I knew this even before getting to watch it be played or anything like that. It's, it's just a classic theme. You get that drum fill to open. Uh, by the way, the drums on this soundtrack, fantastic, as you'd expect from one of the best yeah. drummers in a rock band of all time. I'd hope so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's, you know, midis and you're kind of putting it in the computer, but I mean, still uh, amazing for the time. So, yeah, you have that fill to open. Then you get these guitar chords, kind of like this electric piano synth. And then even like these almost sound like sitar strings. It's an interesting midi to pull for sure. But I mean, this is a song with big nostalgia for those that have played this game. And it's just a classic theme for Spyro. But even so, listening now... This is a PS1 as hell song. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. A lot of these are, for sure. Like, you're tapping into certain midis, and that's the best you can do, honestly, for the time. And I mean, for the time, hey, this is pretty good. And yeah, you're right. I don't feel like we hear a lot of sitar in, like, this era of games. I can't think of a game that would have had that. Yeah, we hear it, you know, in certain games that we've covered on the show before, but... This early? I'm not sure. You're right. But yeah, it's, it's, it is a classic tune. Even uh, I also knew this song. <laughs> Though I think the reignited version comes to mind a little bit more. This is, this is a neat, iconic song, and boy howdy, we put up with some low-quality midis back in the early 2000s and late 90s. Oh boy. Yeah, but you know they're still worth covering, because that took real compositional work to, Very to much create so. and, and make it work for the game experience. So we get to number two on the Critical Five, and this is Artisan's Homeworld. 
This is the hub theme for the first homeworld of the artisans. And so I feel like this is another classic theme that especially players would resonate strongly with. You're getting to run around and glide as Spyro for the first time as you're exploring this hub for the first time. You're, you're finally getting the sense of the controls for the first time, though you don't have any of those collectible tasks just yet. But all of your dragon friends around in the hub there are frozen in crystal, so you should probably get to the different realms and start collecting. I think with this piece in particular, I mean, that percussion gives the energetic pace immediately of you, you're free, run around and duck a duck a duck duck a duck a duck a duck duck a duck like it's all your, your little feet are running around on the ground and then you get these chimes that come in and I think that really helps illustrate the vibe of what these dragons are. They're artists, they're musicians, like that's kind of part of who those characters are. It's what they're all about. And so I think that illustrates it perfectly. Yeah, the chimes are absolutely my favorite part of this song. This song is fantastic. Uh, I agree with the the really active percussion. Because again, one of the best drummers of all time. But I would hope the percussion's good. But yeah, I think those chimes really, really, really make this song... Unfortunately... PS1, one of its big problems is uh, the PS1 essentially, from what I've gathered over the years, can't do any sort of real bass tone. Mm. Like, it's just, it feels like the bottom has been cut out a lot, and I think the chimes really do fill in a bit where those are, are missing, if that makes sense. It's a really neat way of getting around limitations, I think. It's, it's, fun. it's a fun piece. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's something that when it's reimagined in the Reignited Trilogy, now you do have bass that can really be amplified. And I think that's the case also with the next song here on The Critical Five. This is Dark Hollow. You're hearing that PS1 try to recreate those lower tones with this kind of <laughs> low electric piano. Like, we're getting to like the bottom of the register here, but like, that's the best it can do. Uh, but this is a really cool song, and it's just a chill vibe to this one. I think it's probably my favorite piece on the soundtrack because uh, I just love when the fuller drum sound comes in kind of halfway through the clip. And then you have the more prominent electric piano melody come in. Uh, it's just real, real neat. This apparently is a night level in the game. And for the younger players who played this game back in the day and have the big nostalgia for it, saw a lot of commenters say that, like, this is my first experience with a night level in a video game. And so a lot of memories there, supposedly. And I think this kind of atmosphere and this sound really contributes to that. And it's, it's just a really cool piece, I think. What I like about the uh, electric piano is how it's sort of fading in and out mm -hmm. in a way. 
Uh, at least that's what it sounds like. It's it's very quiet and in the background, and then for a few notes it comes up and is and is up in the front, and then it goes back down. And uh, I think it does really help the chill vibe of you know it's nighttime. Nighttime is is a time for relaxing, which is weird because you're a dragon fighting enemies, but you know it it needs to have that chill vibe. Uh, and I think that's that's the part that really registers with me on this song. It definitely has to have a different energy than like happy, fun, jazzy tunes. Like number four on their critical five here. This is Wizard Peak. I should have noted that Dark Hollow takes place, it's Realm 2 of World 1, so in the artisans here. Uh, this kind of takes place in the middle of the game. This is for Wizard Peak. It's Realm 3 of World 3, which is the magic crafters sort of environment. And there's just a fun energy to this one with like an organ-like backing. You get these jazzy little electric piano riffs that come in here. Just This was one that I heard and I felt like I had heard it before. Where could I have heard it before? And it's apparently because the main theme of the Amanda show that Stuart Copeland composed for uses some sort of remixed version of this song. And it's like people come and it's like, you thought we wouldn't notice, or there's all sorts of Amanda references in the comments. Uh, so that's <laughs> pretty amusing, I think. That is a bizarre connection to make, but all right. I think this is my favorite song in the Critical Five. This song is just really fun. Uh, I like that electric organ a lot. It's another one of those songs that's like, oh, this is a this is a prize montage, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, on yeah. On a game show, we got both games have one this time. But yeah, this this song's just delightful to listen to. I I I love it a lot. It's really catchy, and it's like, yeah, I, something like resonated inside me when I heard it. I'm like, you you have heard this before. I don't know where, but you've heard it before. We'll wrap things up in the Critical Five with that final boss. This is Nasty Nork. I know it's fun to say Ganasty Ganork, but this is the boss realm of Nasty's world. As you may have more memories with this, Joe, being yep. the uh, sticking point here, uh, I, listening to this for the first time, didn't think it was that tense for a final boss encounter, especially when he's running away and you have to catch up with him. And yet, I think the instrumentation is doing some really cool things here. You have this heavy bass-driven chord progression. Here you go. Some of the, the lower notes finally showing, kind of representing evil. 
And so does that distorted electric guitar chord. Those hits that come in and bam, just kind of bring in the noise a little bit here. Uh, I don't know how it necessarily translated to the reignited version or what your memories are with this, but I felt like whether it was this one or the bonus world, uh, I was kind of torn between those, but figured this one was a good thing to kind of round things out. I like this song, but it thematically makes no sense that this is the final boss song. I don't remember what it sounds like in Reignited. Uh, especially, like you said, it's a boss where, you have, where you're chasing him. It's a little bit more of a frantic sort of energy to it. Uh, but yeah, the whole boss is you're chasing him. And if you slow down even a little bit, then he gets away from you and he throws something at you and you die. But also, if you uh, don't do perfect turns, you fall off the edge and die immediately. And I just didn't like the final boss. And this song just doesn't fit it. But that's okay, because it's still really good. I, I do. I agree that the instrumentation is is very interesting, but this sounds more like a pause menu screen almost. <laughs> I mean, it could also just be like a general like theme of him doing like a cutscene or whatever. Yeah, doing... cutscene would have been my second thing. Yeah, but you're right. Not necessarily a final boss track. Important to note, I figured, though. Um, so when it comes to tracks on the cutting room floor, I have two. One of these is Stone Hill. Have we discovered actually good bass on a PlayStation game? I think we have. That's pretty good. That's a good bass line. So Stonehill is Realm 1 of World 1. So the first main level, you'd think, and you'd think like most 3D platformers would have like happy fun music to get you learning the basics. No, not this at all. Not at all what I would imagine a first level to sound like. In fact, I actually get like final hours vibes from Majora's Mask. Like the beginning of that clip there, that haunting instrument in the background, that's like straight up that instrument, I think. I think so, but the bass groove kind of disqualifies it in some way <laughs> from right, being right. that, to be fair. Yeah, you don't have bells coming in going, ba-dong, ba-dong. <laughs> But this song is, like, really good. That bass line is some good stuff, especially for a PlayStation. Damn. I don't know if it's used that often, but it, it stands out here, that's for sure. And then the other one on the cutting room floor here, this is Lofty Castle. Here you go, Joe. I picked this one for you. This yeah. is Realm 2 of World 5, so the Dreamweavers environment. And I thought it was just a really fun, energetic piece where like, there are these neat little trade-offs between the higher-pitched piano notes, the melody, and then it's lower supporting notes. And it's just got this 
bouncy and fun rhythm to it. Like the lofty environment, your head's in the clouds. You're you're kind of dreaming here with the dream weavers. It's a bouncy, fun rhythm that's also just, it sort of feels wrong every once in a while, or like weird. And that fits with, you know, dreams. Dreams is a big part of the dream weavers, I would assume. I don't remember. But <laughs> I think that that really gives this song a lot of personality, too, because sometimes they, the rhythm just sort of goes to an offbeat for just a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And it comes back. Uh, and I think that that adds a lot of uh, a lot of personality and flavor to this song. It's very good. A neat little quick syncopation there. So what will I never forget about Spyro the Dragon? I mean, I have a lot to learn about it, honestly. If it, if it weren't evident there. Uh, it's, you know, listening to this and the soundtrack, it makes me want to play the game, actually. And so maybe that's something I do this year. But I think it was more fun to learn about Stuart Copeland and... Uh, the connection he had with this game and what Spyro means to him and his career as the drummer for the police. I mean, oh my goodness. I, just a fun connection, I think, especially with the composers we covered this week. It's always weird to like go into one of these and like, oh, this guy like had a big musical career and then for some reason went into video games before video game music was respected at all. Mm-hmm. Like, neat. Very neat stuff. As for uh, thoughts on Spyro, I don't know. I want to go back to Spyro 2 and 3 on the Reignited Trilogy. Maybe I should try Spyro 1's final boss again. But, I mean, they're they're fine games. And I do like Spyro a lot. And I think the level design is fantastic. But I just haven't had all that much motivation to go back to it, unfortunately. I'm glad they nailed his design for the reignited trilogy because yeah we are coming off those years of uh spyro in skylanders could you imagine if it was the skylanders design that design is so ugly that design is so ugly he's like all warty and gross and oh geez but no they they think they nailed it for the reignited trilogy that's it's a great remake i think if that's how you want to play this game definitely give that one a go so yes, with Mark Mothersbaugh and Stuart Copeland being parts of the bands Devo and The Police, I mean, classic rock bands of the 70s and 80s, and then they became composers for film, TV, and video games. Ah, just amazing. Glad we could cover them on the show, especially with these games, The Sims 2 and Spyro the Dragon. So that will do it for us this week on Original Sound Chat. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at StringPixel. That's a relatively new Twitter account for him, so you should follow him there in case you're still following him on his old account. The video version of Original Sound Chat is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, but it's that MP3 podcast that you really want, hosted by Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. That's where Joe's other podcast, Smasterpieces, is hosted. And you can find Smasterpieces and Original Sound Chat on podcast services all around the globe, wherever you get your podcasts, including on Spotify, where we have the feed of podcast episodes and things like that. But we also have a Spotify playlist where if we cover a video game song on the show and it's on Spotify, we put it on that big playlist. Joe, what's being added this week? So like you said, uh, Spyro has never had an official release of its soundtracks, not even Reignited Trilogy, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Which is bizarre. Uh, but Sims has, and it's on Spotify, so that will be added to the playlist this week. Excellent. When you're done listening, you can find us on social media at SoundChatOST. 
leave some feedback for us, tell us how we're doing, as well as suggestions for games to cover on the show, like Spyro the Dragon, which we are trying to do more of in 2021. That's one of our big goals. And Sims 2 was also a listener suggestion, so we're doing them. We're doing them. We're getting there. Bit by bit, that's for sure. Just like we're getting around to figuring out the situation with our merch site and working on bonus tracks for you all. But Joe, who are we talking about next week? Next week is going to be an absolutely bizarre episode, and I have no idea how it's going to go. I will be talking about M-Box. Hmm. Interested to learn what that is or who that is. I Me have too. no idea. <laughs> Me too. I have no <laughs> idea. Well, I'll be talking about Junya Ota. It's going to be a weird couple games. It's going to be an interesting week. We'll learn a lot of things. In the meantime, let's play us out. And I just wanted to hear one of these songs like done with you know updated instruments with a fan cover, a fan remake. And found one with the YouTube channel Dale. I don't know if it's Dale, like that that pit bull, just D-A-L-E. <laughs> but Dale, uh, you know, whether it's him or a group of his friends or whatever, got together and played. You know, a live cover of Spyro songs. This one in particular, this is the Artisans Homeworld theme, just titled Artisans. So Artisans by Dale on YouTube. It sounds really good, and I quite enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care. Take care.